Well, good morning. Welcome to worship at Calvary. All of you here in the worship center, all of you over in the chapel, all of you over at our Minnetonka campus, and then anyone who saw the fog and decided to go back to bed and are watching online somewhere else. We're so glad that you are worshiping with us from any one of those places. And we are in our fourth week of a sermon series called Living Hope, which is based on the New Testament book of First Peter. And so whether this is your first time uh, to be a part of this series or you've been there every week, uh, the encouragement is to have your Bible out as we read through this letter and you could get the Bible app on your phone. You could bring your own Bible or there's also some Bibles in, uh, in front of you in all of your worship environments. And you'll notice there's even a sticker that says, if you don't have your own Bible, we would love for you to take one of our Bibles and make it your own. But today we are going to pick up our series in first Peter chapter two. So you can turn there uh, to prepare. So in week one, we talked about how important it is to remember who we are, that our identity really determines our direction. And so Peter wants us to know that we are chosen by God. And that makes a huge difference, that God takes the initiative and he chooses us first. But also we are exiles or foreigners in this world that we're not at home where we're at, that our home is with God in heaven. And so there's gonna be a tension in our lives. And then the second week, we talked about how we can find joy even in suffering. And it's because of God's presence and his power and what he's done in Jesus. And then last week, Pastor Dan talked about how we are called to live in light of the resurrection, that the resurrection changes everything. And then as we follow Jesus forward, it should impact every part of our lives. Well, because I think we're always in danger of forgetting who we are, and what that means for us, and we need constant reminders. Peter, again today, wants to be clear about who we are in Christ. And so we're gonna pick this up in First Peter chapter two, verse nine. And he's talking up till this point about people who have rejected Jesus, and now he says this, but you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. Remember that theme from week one. He says, you are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. And so Peter is saying, even though life is rough for these first century Christians, and we could also say, Our life is often filled with hardship. Even though his audience is experiencing marginalization and humiliation, he wants them to know, he wants us to know that you are members of a new people, a new kingdom, a new nation even where God is ruling and reigning. That we are set apart by God's grace and mercy for his glory so that others in our world who might not have any idea who God is or who Jesus is can experience his glory and his power and his light 
through us. Now this new reality, this new identity that we are given in Christ, it's not permission to just fly under the radar, to just stay in our own little bubble. No, instead it's a new calling. It's a new mission where we can show others the goodness of God simply by how we choose to navigate this world. In verses 11 and 12, Peter goes on to put it this way. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, remember another theme from week one, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. So as people set apart by God, how we live and how we speak and how we venture through the ups and downs of each day has such a great impact on the hearts and the souls of the people around us. It's exactly what Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter five, verse 16, when he says, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven. I like to call this our job description as followers of Jesus. If there's one place to put our attention and our focus, it's to do this as we follow Jesus to let our actions, to let our words, to let our conduct point others to God. It's so that they will glorify him, not us. It's where we help others, we love others, we treat others with grace and then we duck, we get out of the way so that God gets all the credit. But you know, if this is true, if that can have such an impact on people, well then I think the opposite also must be true. When we hide our light, or when we copy and conform to the darkness around us, it also gets noticed by the people around us. It often confirms the suspicions or the biases or the hardened hearts of those people. There's a powerful quote by an author and teacher named Brennan Manning that says this, The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips. They walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. And I've heard many Christians these days say things like, well, the ends justify the means. Or, you know, yeah, Jesus told us to love our enemies and to turn the other cheek, but that's just not practical in our culture. And you know what? I think that type of thinking is having a major impact on our witness today and also in how people view Christians. And I think sometimes we put so much emphasis on right belief 
that we forget that right deeds and right words are even more important because people are watching us closely to see if what we say we believe actually matches up with our actions and our words. You know, what if we put less focus on judging everyone else and instead focused on how we ourselves live? I think that's the challenge that Peter and Jesus are talking about. So in the next section, in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter talks about two things that were a struggle for first century Christians, but I think there are things that we still greatly struggle with today. And it's these two words, authority and submission. Authority and submission. None of us likes to be under someone else's authority, right? I think from a young age, we're conditioned to question authority. We ask questions like, well, why should I? Or who are you to tell me what to do? Or what will happen to me if I don't do what you say? Or why can't I be the one who's in charge? But then there's submission, which just sounds outdated and old fashioned, doesn't it? It doesn't really make sense to our modern sensibilities. No one wants to submit, right? We want to fight and we want to overcome and we want to take control. Submission just seems like another word for weakness or for losing or for surrendering. But you see, Peter is going to contend that how we handle authority and submission in our lives impacts our witness to a great degree. But not only that, it's also an invitation to follow in Jesus's footsteps. So to get at authority and submission in the first century Christian's life, Peter dives into some very specific and difficult issues. At first glance, they seem removed, they seem distant from our life today. But I think the greater points that Peter is trying to make are very relevant to our lives and our world today. So he starts out by talking about submitting to the governmental rulers and authorities. And then he talks about servants or slaves submitting to their masters. And then if you read into chapter three, which we'll get into next week, he talks about submission within a marriage. Now, of course, all of these issues and topics have the potential to rub us the wrong way or to make us defensive or to really just challenge our preferred way of living and thinking. For instance, submitting to the government is not easy, right? I mean, especially when we disagree or we dislike the government as a whole or maybe certain leaders. And really that's a luxury that we have, right? Living in America, that much of the world or the rest of the world doesn't. A number of years ago, we traveled in Southeast Asia 
And we experienced in a very, very, very small way what it means to be under an authoritarian and oppressive authority. So we were getting ready to fly to China and then Vietnam and Thailand. And I love to do preparation for trips. I read tons of guidebooks and articles and blog posts. And what I noticed is it was clear in so many of these publications that we needed to be very careful in how we approached the government, namely in what we even said about the government in these places. It was not okay to say anything in public critical of the leaders or the government in these countries. Social media was even blocked in a few of them. Now, obviously, this is very, very far from the oppression and mistreatment that Christians face in many countries around the world. But even that little caution, that simple thing, don't say anything negative about the government or the king or the leaders, it grated against me. You know, as we walked around the streets, I would say, like, well, why can't I point out the ridiculousness of whatever the leader of the country is putting gigantic portraits of themselves on like every building? Or when we were walking around China to think we, w- we went to a Starbucks and we saw a communist party leader come with communist plates in a $300,000 Bentley. Like, why can't you point out the hypocrisy of that? I mean, honestly, I've rarely felt compelled to criticize the government in public until I was told you couldn't. Have you ever felt that way before? So again, while acknowledging the difficulty and the uncomfortableness and the many more questions that can rise up when thinking about these issues, I want to look at some of the mega themes that Peter puts before us this morning. And it's important to note that much of what Peter is addressing is happening amidst suffering in the first century. Remember, suffering was just a way of life in the first century church. They're being oppressed by the Roman Empire. And in many ways, it's hard to relate to that living in the time and place that we do. But we also do face difficult challenges in our life. We also face hardships and even suffering, maybe in a different way than a first century Christian, but life is rarely a cakewalk. And the thing about suffering and hardship is that I think it tends to bring out the worst in us. Have you ever noticed that? It becomes easy to justify bad behavior and bad attitudes. It can be easy to let go of our identity in Christ and instead cling to the mirages that this world has to offer. It's easy to start to let culture and its unhealthy behaviors and values impact our response. So the first thing that Peter does is to remind us of our identity once again. And here, what he wants us to know is that we were created to be, we are meant to be, God's servants. We are created, we are meant to be servants of God. He says, for the Lord's sake, submit to all human authority, whether the king as head of state or the officials he has appointed, for the king has sent them to punish those who do wrong and to honor those who do right. It is God's will that your honorable lives should be Silence those ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. For you are free. 
yet you are God's servants. So don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. Respect everyone and love the family of believers. Fear God and respect the king. So again, we are to be servants. And to illustrate this, Peter uses the relationship between humans and governmental authorities to which many of us might have a visceral reaction. But I think Peter is making some clear points here. Number one, Peter is making it clear God's authority is over every other authority. Now this is a common theme in scripture that every authority on earth is given their authority by God. And that means in honoring and serving God, we serve and respect earthly authorities. It doesn't mean you have to agree with them. Look at the story of Daniel in the Old Testament. Look at the Israelites who lived many centuries in exile. They didn't agree with the governmental authorities, but they still respected them and lived in harmony for the most part. Now, this does not mean violating our consciences, but short of that, we are to respect and to submit to authority. In verse 17, Peter says, we are to fear God and respect the king or the ruler. And actually, those two things go hand in hand, and they're very closely tied to where we ultimately put our trust When we forget God's ultimate authority, we suddenly, or then suddenly the world could be destroyed and thrown into chaos if our least favorite candidate makes it into office in November. Bad policy could somehow threaten our existence and the entire future and our survival. But when we remember his authority, when we remember who's really, really, really in control, We don't need to fear. We don't need to get caught up in hysterics. We can simply trust in him. Now in verse 15, there's some curious words. It says, it is God's will. Now, how many times have you asked the question, God, what's your will for my life? What's your will for this situation? And we so so, so want a response. And so here it is. It says, this is God's will. And we might say, you know, what's his will for who I should marry or what job I should take or some other aspect of my life. But instead it says, it is God's will that your honorable lives should silence those ignorant people. Peter is saying how we choose to conduct ourselves through our respect and our honor of the people around us. That is what silences arguments. But when we start to mirror the world, when we start to act angrily and irrationally, it just gives people more ammo against our faith. When we get tempted to argue and to get angry and to write social media screeds and to use coarse language, it has the potential to completely backfire. And God is saying, my will for you is that you would live as an example 
It's so much more powerful. And you might say, but what about all the immorality? And what about this issue or that issue? And what Peter is telling us is live honorably, live with integrity, because that will make an even greater difference. So we're reminded our identity in verse 16 is to live as servants of God. And as we talked about week one, our identity determines our direction. Our identity has so much to say about the choices we make and how we conduct ourselves on a day-to-day basis. When we remember that our primary identity is a servant of God, then we give up our rights to do whatever we want, whenever we want. And instead we choose to fear and honor God and do what he wants us to do. Well, next, Peter reminds us of God's calling. And yes, we have all sorts of different callings from God on our life. But here he specifically raises up God's calling to suffer well. God's calling on our life is to endure suffering well. Again, life is full of sorrow and hardship and struggles Peter makes that point again and again. It's the crystal clear reality of the first century Christian, but I mean, I'd say we can all relate as well. Now, the context that Peter is going to write about in this section is first century slavery, which naturally is repulsive and offensive to us. But it's also important to know that it's quite different than the reality of slavery that happened in America This type of slavery in Roman culture was more like an indentured servitude. You yourself or anyone else could buy you out of your servitude at any point. You were not treated like property. You had rights. But still, as you can imagine, it wasn't desirable, not something you'd want to do, not a pleasant experience. And so here's how the ESV translation translates verses 18 and 19. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. So what does that mean for us today? I heard a pastor one time explain it like this. He said, the point of this passage in our modern day context is to crush your work even when you're being crushed. Your job is not to just punch out and give up and quit. It's to crush your work even when you're being crushed. Now, I would venture to say that does not include abuse or mistreatment. There is absolutely no excuse for that. It's more about how we might stand out and stick out and even be ostracized for our faith and our values. When you choose not to cut corners like everyone else, when you don't follow the crowd to just get along, when you prioritize faith over advancement, you might experience friction, tension, even suffering. Now, as Christ followers, we should be exceptional in our work. We should be unusually good at our conduct. 
not unusually obstinate or unusually difficult or unusually grumbly, if that's a word, or unusually quick to quit. Peter is saying, I know some of you are suffering unjustly under harsh bosses or teachers or coaches. Whatever the environment, he says, it is powerful to continue to do good, to silence them with your integrity. All the while, he says, be mindful of God because that makes all the difference. Do you remember the story of Peter getting out of the boat to walk on water? He sees Jesus walking towards them and he's like, I'm all in. I want to try this out. Jumps over the side, keeps his eyes on Jesus and he starts to walk on the water. It's a shining moment. But then suddenly he gets distracted. He takes his eyes off of Jesus. He looks at the water and the waves and the wind and he starts to sink. You know, when we encounter hardships and suffering in our lives, it's a reminder, keep your eyes on God. Be mindful of his grace and his goodness. When we start to look at the wind and the waves, then we start to sink. Look at verse 20. But if when you do good and you suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. Remember, one of our callings is to suffer like Jesus did. It's really an inescapable part about following him and living as an exile or a foreigner in this world. Well, finally, the amazing thing about our identity and our calling is that Jesus says to us, I'll go first so you can follow me. And so you see, Jesus becomes our example. It says, for God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example and you must follow in his steps. Following in his steps. What does that look like? Well, Jesus said he came to serve and not be served. Jesus said again and again, follow my example. In the gospel of Mark, Jesus is portrayed as the suffering servant. Remember on the way to Jerusalem, he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter had another shining moment. He said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, you've got it. That is the correct answer. And he said, now I must go and be betrayed and suffer death. And Peter is like, absolutely not. I'm never going to let you do that. And Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan. I came to suffer. My calling is to suffer. I'm going to suffer in your place so that you can have new life, a life that is ultimately free from suffering. He suffered so that you and I could be saved. 
And so embracing our identity as servants of God, living out our calling to suffer even unjustly is what it looks like to walk in his footsteps. So Peter closes this passage out by giving us some clear examples that Jesus invites us to follow. In verse 22, he says the first thing, he committed no sin. Even with all of the pressures and stresses that were bearing down on him, Jesus didn't sin. Now, obviously, when we try to do that, we can't. We still sin. But following Jesus' footsteps and his example means every day we need to repent, which just means to turn back, to turn around. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, we don't have to let sin win. We can say, I'm not going to put myself in a vulnerable position again. We can say, I'm going to find ways to stay accountable. I'm gonna find ways to stay away from those dicey situations. The next thing, also in verse 22, it says, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When things got tough, Jesus didn't lie or bend the truth. No, he was authentic. He was committed to his values. And when we experience pressure and stress, don't be tempted to sacrifice the truth or to cut corners. Verse 23 goes on to say, when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Man, that should be such a challenge to us today with social media, with people getting canceled, with so much trolling and insulting going on. It seems like people are just getting meaner and meaner. Jesus had no interest in fighting back, in upping the ante and stooping to their level. And not only that, he had no desire to get revenge even on the people who mistreated him. Church, think of how often we concoct elaborate revenge schemes. Like, man, I know exactly what I would do to that person. And Jesus says to us, don't go there. Follow my footsteps. Not only that, Peter says, God's got this. He's the one who judges justly. He'll take care of it. It's not up to you. Just trust in him. Verse 24 says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. This is Jesus's ultimate example this is what all of this culminates in. He laid down his life. God in the flesh died so that we could be made free. And really, church, what that means is you can't follow Jesus' example without following his death. 
And we're like, well, can't we just do the first things and not do this one? And he says, no, take up your cross and follow me. Die daily to yourself and to the world and be raised to new life. And he says, and by his wounds, you have been healed. It's not a physical healing as much as it is a spiritual healing. Where he says, I'm going to pick you up. I'm going to wash you off. I'm going to give you a new life, a new identity, a new future. I'm going to heal your soul. Finally, look at verse 25. I love this. It says, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. I think most all of us have had a moment or more in life where we've wondered, God, where in the world are you? I can't see you. I can't feel you. I can't hear you. I could really use your help and I feel so alone. And here and in so many other places in scripture, we're reminded God is the shepherd of our soul. But here's the thing about our shepherd. He doesn't take naps. How do we know? Psalm 121 says he never slumbers or sleeps. Our shepherd doesn't take naps. And so all throughout your life, in Christ, you will never experience suffering without shepherding. You will never experience suffering without shepherding. God's got you. You're his beloved child. And you might not see him or feel him, but he's got you. You know, every one of us will die, but it says here, he is the overseer of your soul. Not of our body, but of our soul. Jesus says, he who believes in me will never die because he's the overseer of our soul. One day your body will be laid to rest and it will be raised up on the last day to the new heaven and the new earth. But through it all, he is going to oversee your soul. It means he will see you through. So what would it look like for you to apply these words of Peter in your life this coming week? Perhaps you have a family member who believes differently than you do. They're gonna vote differently than you do. They have a different political philosophy than you do. Maybe they have a different religious belief than you do. What if instead of trying to argue with them, trying to convince them that they're wrong, instead you would love them well? Maybe you're on social media and a friend, or let's be honest, maybe a stranger, write something political you disagree with? What would it look like to walk in Jesus's footsteps? How would you respond? Maybe you're preparing your tax documents because that season's coming and you start to rage against the government. Remember Peter's words on authority and submission. 
Remember what Jesus said about giving Caesar what's Caesar's. Maybe you have a fear of the future. Maybe you have test results coming this week. Maybe it's a fear about a loved one. Remember who your shepherd is and remember that he's the overseer of your soul. Church, God's identity for you is that you are a servant of God and God's calling for you is to endure suffering well. And all the while, God's example for you is Jesus himself. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks and praise that you are our shepherd, that you are the overseer of our souls. So we don't need to stress. We don't need to fear. We can simply trust. And so God, help us this week to walk in Jesus's footsteps, that when we feel ourselves being pulled away by culture or by the darkness of this world, that you would just give us a nudge through your Holy Spirit so that we can get back on track and we can continue to shine our lights and we can continue to love others well, that we can continue to model what Jesus modeled for us, which is a life of service and grace and love. God, help us to shine brightly for you and let it make an impact for you wherever we go. And so God, we lift this up in the powerful name of your son, Jesus. And let's all say together, amen.